Well, good morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are interested in financial peace, this is David. David, stand up real quick. David, when is it going to meet? Mondays, 6 p.m. Monday, 6 p.m. right here. And David is going to be facilitating it. You can sit down now. (laughs) Financial peace is a big deal. Um, It's one of those, you know, what's the answer to our money problems? Typically, it's we want more money, right? Uh, But really, that's not, most of the time, that's not the answer. The answer is getting a grip on the money that God has already blessed us with. And so this will teach you how to manage your money. Uh, You might realize, actually, as you go through this, that you have more than you realized. You just need to get better at managing it. So um, join Financial Peace if you haven't done that already. You can sign up in the back there. You can sign up on the Let's Connect on the app. Um, Any other way? No, that's it. Okay. Also, great news. Uh, If if you're visiting or if, if you've been coming a little while, maybe you haven't heard, but we are buying a building. Um, that's our goal, at least. Yes. <laughs> so there was, there was a building we really felt God leading us to, and uh, we made an offer on it, and somebody else outbid us. And so we've been praying that they would back out. And they did. So that, that building came back. Yes, I, I, prayer works. It, no, really, prayer works. And I mean, even after that happened, Paul's like, I still think God has that building for us. So that's what we've been praying toward. Um, we've made an offer. It's been accepted. We're under contract. So now we're in the process of uh, raising the money and, and making all that come together and then getting some remodel done. So the goal would be to get in there in April. Um, so if, if you have been wondering and praying about how God might have you participate, well, now it's, it's time to, to do whatever God has asked you to do. Um, but the biggest thing is that we pray. Again, pray for the finances. Uh, pray for the right contractor for us to hire uh, that we can get that done. Um, if you received my email, maybe you saw on there that, that we have this $250,000 matching grant that somebody's going to give us. So as much as we can raise up to two fifty, dollars they will match it, which is pretty awesome. Um, and if you're looking in your bulletin, you might be looking at the, the building fund and go, that doesn't line up exactly with what your email said. Well, that's because uh, there's still some of those commitments that we're waiting to come in, and that will change. But uh, if you know anybody out there that just wants to give to, and they're not sure where to give, give them a call. Give them a call and tell them, hey, God is at work in Carson City. Um, and, and here's the address where you can send your check. So, but, but that's, that's a, a big deal. We are grateful for what God is doing um, this morning. We, we pray every Sunday before our service at, at 930. And we were just praying this morning, just excited about what God is doing. Um, God is doing great things. Lives are being changed. Uh, marriages are being healed. People are coming to know Christ. And we're just grateful to be part of it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. God, thank you as we sing these songs and and it focuses on on you. God, we had a debt we couldn't pay. Our sin was racked up against us and racked up against you. And Jesus, you paid that price for us so that we could then be reconciled back to the Father. We thank you. Thank you that we can be free. (laughs) We were once dead and now we're alive in you. Father, I pray if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you yet as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day where you stir their hearts to say yes to you for the first time. God, I pray for the marriages in this room, for the kids next door, that you would do what you want to do in us to make us more like you and to give us that abundant life that you've called us to. Jesus, you said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God, we want you to live in and through us for your glory. Open up our hearts and our minds this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you uh, 
We're doing the prayer journey. We had a 21-day prayer journey, and that just recently finished up. Um, hopefully, some of us have, for the first time, created a daily habit of spending time in prayer. We, we believe at Common Ground that prayer really precedes any mighty working of God in this world, and we've been praying for years that God will do a work here in Carson City, and He is. He's working here. There's some other churches in town that, that things are going well. God is at work there, and so there's some answer to prayer. But speaking of prayer... How do you pray for those you love? Parents, how do you pray for your kids? How do you pray for your church? How do you pray for the city? You know, we, uh, Callie and I, some years ago, started changing the way we prayed for our kids. We used to pray, primarily keep them safe, you know, help them love you, obviously that, but we would pray for protection and safety. And, and he changed that in us, in that how, we want our kids to have faith. And how has faith grown? Faith is like a muscle. You actually have to work it out to make it strong. And so faith grows really not when everything's hunky-dory. Faith grows when we have to walk through life with Christ. And so we started actually praying more for opportunities for our kids to grow in their faith. Opportunities, which means not always protection, not, not always things going well. Now we're going to be looking in Ephesians at Paul and how he prays for this church. And this is exciting. You know, this is one of those neat times that as I was studying and preparing, God really spoke to me. God really kind of showed me a new way to pray. You know, a lot of times we, we pray for circumstances to change, and that's not bad. But Paul didn't pray that way. Paul prayed differently for these people that he loves. Turn to Ephesians, if you would. Here's the context of Ephesians, and this is going to be helpful. Uh, Ephesus was a city. Uh, they had a temple there to Artemis, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, and all of society was wrapped around that temple and other idolatrous worship. They were a very pagan society. They believed in many gods, many spirits. Uh, there was a lot of magic going on. So, I mean, some of those things that you think maybe don't exist, well, they, they had that going on. A lot of demonic activity. And so these believers now, they, they didn't used to be believers. They were wrapped up in this culture. And so they would, they would go to this you know, magician to cast a spell for this, or, or they would go visit this spirit to help with, with their fields. Or, and that was their kind of insecure life, was, was chasing after these things. Well, Paul, he went to Ephesus and he spent two years there, more than he spent in any other city, and he built this church. Uh, and not just the church in Ephesus, but word spread from Ephesus to all of Asia, the surrounding area. God was doing great things and so great things that there in the city of Ephesus, people were coming to know Christ and it was changing the economy in the city because so much of it was wrapped around idolatry. Uh, the, the first Christians, while Paul was still there, they brought together their magic books and burned them. The value to now would be about $6 million worth of magic books. So they burned these. While Paul was there, this riot broke out because a silversmith who was making idols started losing business because people weren't buying the idols anymore. They were turning to Jesus. And so he stirred up this crowd and this riot, uh, and they gathered together just yelling for, for a long time, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, and some of the Christians got brought into that, and Paul wanted to go help and bring them back, and his friends wouldn't let him. So, I mean, it's a very intense city and an intense place where people were pulled out of paganism. And here's kind of the neat thing. None of them were raised in the church. So these people that he's writing to, they were all in the world and came to know Christ later. None of them had that testimony. Well, my mom and dad were Christians and I was raised in... None of them. They were all new first-generation Christians. And so how would Paul, who is now in prison in Rome, 
seven or eight years later, how would he be praying for these Ephesian Christians? That's what we're going to see. We're going to read Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is how Paul prays for these Ephesian Christians in a very pagan society, similar, I think, to what we're living in here. And how does he pray? He begins in verse 17. You see here he prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I think it's interesting, notice the, the Trinitarian context there. He refers to the Father, Son, and the Spirit all in that verse. He's asking the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to give them this spirit. And that spirit there, maybe your Bible, it's capitalized. Uh, that's not our human spirit, that's the Holy Spirit to give us the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Uh, the Spirit there, this is important for us. You may think that, that he's asking for them to get more of the Spirit, but these are Christians. Again, he's writing to saints, believers. They already have the Holy Spirit. So he's not asking for a second blessing of the, the Holy Spirit. He, what he's asking for is that the Holy Spirit that already lives in them would enlighten them, would grow them, that they would understand more and more by walking in the Spirit as He would reveal more about Himself. You see that. What is He asking them to have wisdom and revelation about? The knowledge of Him. The knowledge of God. That's His big prayer for these Christians, that they would know God. Remember Jesus. He said, this is eternal life, that you know the Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. You know, forever and ever, we're going to be in heaven with God, the new heaven and new earth, and we're probably not going to be doing church the same way. We're not going to be needing to do evangelism, but we're always going to be growing in the knowledge of God. And that begins now. Eternal life begins now. And so that's what he's asking, that they would have a spirit of wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? If you read in Proverbs, it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In James, James writes, if you lack wisdom, Ask, and God will give abundantly to those who ask for wisdom. Wisdom isn't just, you know, we might picture the, the guru on the top of the hill, the wise man, just kind of, and you climb the mountain, maybe you've read the comics, you climb the mountain to get wise advice from this. That's really not wisdom. I mean, wisdom is, there is knowledge wrapped up in wisdom, but the, the biblical use of wisdom is really more of a skill. If you read back when they were building the tabernacle and the temple, and God said, find people with wisdom in 
carpentry. Or wisdom in silver, it's a skill. And so here, wisdom is a skill to, to live by. It's not just a head knowledge about God, but he's asking for a heart experiential knowledge of God. Amen. Amen. That's right. And so, so this wisdom, he, he's wanting it to move from head to heart. Now, we need knowledge. That's why we get together on Sunday. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we study. But he wants it to move from head to heart. There can be a problem a lot of times in, in Christianity is it becomes all about the head. We just want to learn. And we think we're mature because we know a lot about the Bible or a lot of theology or whatever it is. But a lot of times it, it just stays there. And so Paul is asking for this wisdom, this experiential knowledge to go from head to heart. The picture that I have is of uh, teaching a kid to ride a bike. You know, maybe some of you taught your kids how to ride a bike. Uh, I have three daughters and a son who I taught to ride a bike. And, you know, we didn't go into the living room and pop in a video, you know, and watch people riding bikes. We didn't read a book on, on balance, you know, and here's a gyroscope. You know, we didn't do that. We actually went outside, got on a bike, and pushed them down the road. You know, that's, we ran alongside, you know, and let go. Are you still holding on? Sure am, you know. But, but, but that's what he's talking about here. It's an experiential, you know, running through life like riding a bike, learning that he wants us to learn. He wanted these Ephesians and same to us to learn how to walk through life with God. You know, this knowledge of God will change the way we live. It'll change the way we go to school, the way we treat our teachers, the way we do work, the way we do our marriage, the way we do parenting. So he's asking for this skill to live by in knowing him. But there's another word he uses, revelation. He asks that he would give him a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, this is a, another big deal that we need to understand. This is not talking about new revelation. This is not talking about, you know, we as Christians, you know, sitting there praying and, and boom, I just now know something brand new and go tell, you know, God spoke to me and this is what he said. That's not what he's talking about. Revelation, biblically, as we see here and, and you see elsewhere, talking about the mystery of God's will, revelation of the knowledge of God, meaning knowing what he has revealed about himself. You know, God is unknowable. We as a staff are just starting to read uh, A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy, which is great. But I was reading just the first chapter the other day, and, and it's talking about God and how God is actually unknowable. You know, everything that we know, we can see. We've never seen God face to face, and, and we can't really know God because he's so other than us. But yet we can know what he has revealed about himself. And what is God's ultimate revelation about himself? Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus Christ came, Jesus walked around and he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what is God like? Exactly like Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. So what is God like? He is just like Jesus. And how do we get to know Jesus? Through the Word, primarily. The Gospels is where you really get to know the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so this revelation isn't a, you know, a light bulb coming on of something new that's not in God's word that God has just given to you to run out and be a new prophet. That's not it. It's he has revealed things about himself and he wants us to understand those things, to get to know God better and better of what he has revealed about himself. So this revelation is really rarely, if ever, going to be apart from his word. In his word is where we discover these new things about God that he has put out about himself. You know, this is why here at Common Ground, we, we focus on groups so much. 
You know, we really emphasize our outpost groups because life change best takes place in community around the Word of God. If you remember, as we went through chapter one so far, Paul is writing to the church as a whole. You know, the words he's using are y'all or all y'all. He's speaking to the group, the church, um, which applies to us as individuals, absolutely. But he's speaking to a community. So this community, as our community, he prays that they would grow in the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in, in a workable knowledge of him. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We'll stop right there real quick. He's asking for the eyes of their heart to be enlightened. I like that, that wording. So have you ever had a conversation with a non-believer and you've tried to talk to them about God, about the gospel? There's, Hebrews says there's a veil over their hearts. Before we come to know Christ, there's a veil over our hearts, not just our minds, but over our hearts that we, we won't understand the things of God. And at conversion, that, that veil has been removed. The lights come on. Maybe you remember when you gave your life to Christ and then you started reading the word. You started getting things. Maybe you started listening to sermons and actually understanding what was coming out because that's what God does. The Holy Spirit comes in and makes a new life. We see a lot in Ephesians about our identity in him. You know, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And so this veil has been removed and he's asking that the eyes of their heart be enlightened, that they could see. I think the picture is kind of of, a, of a, a building, you know, picture a big mansion. And all the lights are off. Before we know Christ, all the lights are off. You, you can't really see. We're stumbling in the darkness. Just like these, these Christians, before they came to know Christ, they were stumbling through what they knew, the religion of their culture, and, and stumbling around. Then they came to know Christ, and the lights came on. But kind of like when you walk into a house and all the lights are on, it takes a little time to walk through and, and examine each corner and, and each new room and each closet. And that's kind of the idea, is that when we come to Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit, and, and the lights come on, but then we go through the adventure of discovering more and more about God in His Word and in His community. And so that's what he's asking, that their hearts would be enlightened in three specific areas, that they would understand three specific truths about God and about who they are in God. Remember, at the beginning of Ephesians, over and over, we saw these blessings that are ours in Christ. So it's our identity in Christ, and he wants us in Christ to know three things. Here they are. Verse 18, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's the first one. He asks that we would understand the hope that comes in him. You know, if you're a note taker, this is in your notes. And we phrased it this way. We pray that each of us know the hope that is assured for the Jesus follower. Because this is the way we can pray for each other. And this is the way, hopefully, you know, this comes enlightened to some of us today. But this hope that is in Him, what is our hope? Well, here we go back to the first part of chapter 1, where we see all these blessings that are ours in Christ. Our hope is in Him. Our hope is, is our eternal security. You know, we looked at at God's promise, Jesus' promise that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And he says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When you get an experiential, experiential knowledge of God, this wisdom in your heart, and this hope comes alive and real, it changes every aspect of your life. 
You know, this hope isn't a, I hope this works out. Hope in this context is a confident assurance of what is true. And so here it's a confident assurance that Jesus came, that he died on the cross. And that Jesus said, it is finished when he died. Meaning our sins were poured on him, done. We don't hope that that's the case. We are confident, assured that that's the case. Jesus said, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to give you new bodies. I'm going to destroy this earth with fire and make a new one, a perfect one, new heaven and new earth. That's our hope, that this is all coming. And so he wants us to understand this hope. And again, it's an experiential hope. It's not just a, a head hope. You don't just know that God is, is there. You don't just know that he's coming back, but you live on that hope. Paul is asking for continued growth of understanding and of knowledge. That's what he's asking. Here's the second one. Not only the hope, but he also prays, verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Let me read the whole verse. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So here's number two. We pray that each of us know how deeply we are valued by God as his inheritance. This is really cool. Maybe you've read this verse many, many times, and you immediately thought that this inheritance was our inheritance. Because earlier in chapter one, it talked about we, as adopted sons and daughters of the king, we now have an inheritance in him. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about his inheritance, which is kind of strange, that God has an inheritance. You know, how does somebody get an inheritance? Well, somebody else dies. So who died that God would get an inheritance? Jesus. So Jesus died on the cross to reconcile those who would belong to him back to God. And so what God did not have before, people, because of Jesus dying and rising from the dead, he now has, and that's what it says in these verses that we are his inheritance. This is awesome. we got to understand this because it's the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You guys ever been to a museum? You know, maybe, uh, I'm not sure the ones in this country, but, but around the world you can go to these museums and see actual real treasure. You know, riches and jewels, and yeah, I think England has some of that stuff. The, the crown jewels, uh, the Fabergé eggs in Russia. You can see these amazing treasures. I think of uh, the, the academia. Maybe you've heard of the Michelangelo, or uh, the David, Michelangelo's David. And that's in Florence, Italy, and there's this, this museum. And you walk through the whole museum, and there's all these paintings. And for me, eh, who cares, really? Uh, but people get stuck on all these paintings and all these sculptures. But at the very middle of this museum is Michelangelo's David, this giant sculpture of David you know, holding his sling. And if you know the story, this, this giant piece of marble, two other sculptors had tried to make Michelangelo's David out of it. You know? And they would work with this, this stone, uh, and they just couldn't do it. You know, they would start and they would give up. They said it is too mediocre piece of, of stone to do anything with until Michelangelo came along. And he made probably, arguably, the greatest masterpiece uh, sculpture that, that exists. And when you go to this museum, it's right there in the middle, and that's where the crowd is. The crowd is all around that sculpture right there. Michelangelo, who took this eh, piece, of, piece of stone and made the masterpiece, it's kind of like you and me, isn't it? 
<laughs> you know, you know, maybe some of us feel like we're, we're, we're that kind of stone, not real workable, but, but God takes us and makes a masterpiece. And so here's kind of the picture that I have is, is of God with his museum, you know, and he leads the, the, the tour and he's going through and in the, the first room you go in and you see all the things he created, you know, the Niagara Falls and the, the Grand Canyon, you know, look at all these amazing things I've created and point to all these, these pictures. And then he leads maybe to, to the next room and there you'll see animals that he's created. You know, here's the platypus and he gets to talk about what he was thinking when he made that. Um, you know, the buffalo, all these other animals that we've never seen, the dinosaurs, he actually explains what happened to those. I mean, this would be a cool museum to walk through. But then he goes to the middle and his, his face would light up, and he goes, this is the real prize. This is my real treasure, and there is all the saints. Each of us that he's called, that he has chosen, that he has adopted, and he'll walk through this museum, and he'll point to, to this group over here. You know, I picture him, you know, Common Ground is going to be in this museum of his. You know, here's Common, this is a church that I called. I brought these people together. Oh, and look at this individual and this individual. And his heart just pours out of love for each of us. That's what Paul is trying to convey. This is what Paul is praying, that they would know how valued they are to God. What does our identity matter in this life if that's what God thinks about us? I mean, think, God doesn't just like you. God loves you. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. I, I mean, maybe for you, you know, I can, I can pretend, you know, in front of people. I can't pretend in front of God, so he knows everything in my heart. And he still is like, I like you. I treasure you. You're valuable to me. That's amazing. You know, that's what Paul wants them to know, how valuable they are to God. This is different than every other religion. Every other religion out there, it's all about the God and you have to work to get to him. The true gospel of God sending his son to die for us and then he treasures us, it's amazing. I mean, that's what he created us for. In the garden, he created Adam and Eve to be in relationship with him. They walked through the garden. Imagine that. Awesome. He made us for a relationship with him because he wanted to share himself. And then we messed it up. The lady messed it up. And then the man messed it up. And now all of us have messed it up. And he fixed it because what he treasures most is a relationship with you and with me. It's amazing. But that's not all. Look back. Verse 19. And... What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? We pray that each of us know how great God's power is toward us. Now, this is a big prayer, especially in that context, because they had these other gods, you know, little g gods. They were demonic spirits, but they would go appeal to these who had some power, and then this one would have maybe more power. And so he's, he's asking that they would understand the full power of God, the full power of God that is available to every believer. And I think we need to understand that too. What are you struggling with? What are you struggling with? Guess what? God can handle it. It's not beyond God. Financial problems, go to financial peace. And God will handle it. God can work it out. Relational issues, go to God. God is powerful enough to work out whatever issue we've got going on. Do we know that? Do we believe that? Now, a lot of times we can think that God's power is in miracles and doing all these signs and wonders. That's really not what he's talking about. But it's the power of God in us 
in us to change us, to make us like him and to do great things. I mean, golly, look at Carson City. Look at what God has done among you, among us, and continues to do. That's his power. I mean, he is doing things that only he can do, and that's what we ask. We ask God to do what only he can do, because then he gets the credit. You know, we, as those belonging to God through Jesus, we don't live defeated lives. We don't need to. We're not destined for depression, addiction to sin, ineffectual lives, because the power of God is available to every single one of us. You know, one commentator said that, that Paul here exhausted all the Greek words for power. He says uh, in verse 19, what is the immeasurable, no measure, greatness, that's another word of his power toward us, according to the working of his great might. He's just emphasizing God's great power. Do you believe that? <laughs> you believe that God's power is available to you and the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's the same power. When Jesus died on the cross, God raised him from the dead three days later. It's the same power that lives in you and me. Amen. And it's his power. So it's kind of like, again, we're going to this experiential wisdom, kind of like electricity. So you've got two different groups that, that deal with electricity. You've got an electrician, and then you've got an eel. The electrician knows about electricity, can try and manipulate electricity, but they touch the electricity, they're going to they're gonna get a, a, a jolt. Whereas the, the eel experiences the electricity. They are electricity. That's kind of the idea of the power we want to experience in us. I mean, we pray every week that when we come together, God would be here, that he would do things that we can't do, that he would change our hearts, that he would change our minds. Again, what a great prayer. I mean, I, I want nothing greater for my kids than that they would know the love of God this deeply, that they would walk in faith, and the same for us. So guess what? Sometimes when I'm praying for you, when I hear of your circumstances, I don't pray that they will change. Sorry. <laughs> I pray that God will do what he wants to do in you in the circumstance. Now, don't pray that for me. <laughs> in my circumstances, pray for them to get better and change. <laughs> but this is, this is how we pray. This is how we should pray. This is how we can pray, that we will know God specifically the hope we have in Him, that we are valued deeply by Him, and that His power, all of it, is available to us. But now Paul finishes by describing Jesus. And I love these verses because it's kind of like he goes on a little rant and lifts up Jesus just to be adored. You know, the hard part about preaching through the first three chapters of Ephesians is there's no commands. You know, it's really great to teach commands because it's like, hey, do this. All right, go do that. There's no commands in the first three chapters. It's really all about knowing who you are in Christ and who Jesus is. And that's what Paul does here is he lifts up Jesus to be adored. He puts Jesus on this pedestal that these Ephesians would see him for who he is. And if they do, they don't have to worry about anything else. You know, it's kind of that picture of, you know, you look at something, I mean, focus on something, everything else. Yeah, I'm looking at John. And now Jeannie is right next to John, and she's kind of fuzzy because I'm looking at John. It, you know, that's kind of the way it is. When you stare at Jesus, everything else becomes kind of fuzzy. And so Paul wants us to look at Jesus and understand him for who he is. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority 
and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is Jesus. Jesus isn't just a God. Jesus is the God. Jesus isn't just, you know, comparable to other powers. He is far above all rulers, all authority. It's all about Jesus. And in Christ, we get him. I mean, what do we have to worry about? You know, those with, I don't know how you can walk through life without Christ. It's a scary life. It's a scary place. Things happen with kids. Things happen with family. Without Jesus, there is no hope. But look at Jesus. He's got authority over all. This is who he is. And all these wonders about Christ, he makes known and reveals in the world through his church. Again, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. At least there's not supposed to be. Verse 23, speaking of the church, it says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. For some reason, this is how God has chosen to work, through his people, not around them. So all these amazing things about God, he wants to reveal to the rest of the world. How? Through you and through me. His church, we are his body. We're going to see more of that as we go through Ephesians, but we are the body of Christ, the fullness of him. He's going to reveal himself to the rest of the world through us. He is going to use you and me and his word to help others be reconciled to him, to find life. That's our prayer, life change, that people come to know him. But it's all about Jesus. This is our God. Now, as we close, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper this morning. And what's our great application? One... Let's pray this prayer. Pray this for yourself. Pray this for the rest of the body. Pray this for the other churches in town. That they also would know the greatness of God's power, the hope. I mean, what would God do in this city? Remember how I said in Ephesus, the economy changed because so many people were coming to Christ? What if that happened in Carson City? Yeah. What if, what if we prayed this prayer and we really started to understand and live on this hope, experiential wisdom, and then the other churches were too. And then it just expanded and expanded and certain businesses went out of business or were kicked out of town. What would God do? He wants to do great things. So as we take the Lord's Supper, let's pray this prayer. You know, we have our prayer walls over here. Maybe there's somebody specific you want to pray this for. Just write down some of this. Maybe just one of these pieces. Write it down and stick it in the wall. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this is our time to remember what Jesus did. In Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it. And he gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. <coughs> Jesus gave instruction. He gave us two things that we're told to do. One is baptism. That's the first one. Believe, be baptized. And here's the second. You can call it a sacrament. You can call it an ordinance. But the second is the Lord's Supper. He said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. 
And so we remember Jesus' death on the cross. We remember his blood shed for us, that blood that purchased you. I mean, if you missed the last couple of weeks, go look at it. But we are now adopted by him because of what he did on the cross. It always comes back to the cross. We remember. We thank. But we're also told, Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, how to take the Lord's Supper. Don't take it in an unworthy manner, meaning examine your heart. This is for believers. If you're not a believer, just stay seated. Don't take the Lord's Supper. If you are a believer and you've got sin that you're hiding in there, it's time to confess it. Give it to God. We have people available to pray with you in the back. You can go give it to them and then come take the Lord's Supper with a free heart. Is there somebody, a fellow believer in this body or in another body that you're having a problem with? Well, that's another area we're told. Make things right with our fellow believers before taking the Lord's Supper. Unity is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to Jesus. And so examine yourself. How are you? Do you have unconfessed sin? Do you have something you want to deal with? Deal with it and then take the Lord's Supper. He said, do this as often as you do it until I come again. So it's looking back at the cross, but at the same time, we're looking forward in hope. And what's that hope? He's coming back. He's coming back. So this is an exciting celebration, time of thanksgiving, looking forward to Jesus coming back. The way we do it here is uh, we have the tables up here. Just come down one of these aisles, grab the, the cup, grab the bread. You can get in a group in a corner and pray for whoever you want. You can take it back to your seat, however you like to do it. The reason we do it this way is we like worship to be active. Uh, a lot of times church can become a spectator sport when really we are all the worshipers. So let's worship together. Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. It is so humbling, Jesus, as I look at these verses to see how much you value each of us. You gave your life for us. You love us. You adore us. And now you've made yourself completely available to us. I ask that we would understand the hope, that we would live on the hope, that it wouldn't be just a head knowledge, but that in our hearts we are confident in you. I pray that we would understand how valuable we are to you, God, with, with social media, with all these things going on, we can get down on ourselves, our self-image, and, and worry so much about what others think of us. I pray that we would rest secure in what you think of us and that you look at us as righteous and pure because of Jesus. I pray that we would know the power that is available to us through you, Jesus Christ. Not a power to do our own will, but a power to have victory over sin, a power to break down strongholds, a power to seek and save the lost. God, I know you want to do great things through us as individuals and through us as a church. Please show us your power as we've been singing. Show us your power for your glory. We love you. As we take this bread, as we take this cup, we remember, Jesus, what you've done, and we just say thank you. We are nothing without you. We need you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.